So on the surface, this might not sound like an interview that will interest you, but I promise you there's tons of value, tons of great things that we cover on today's episode. I'm speaking with a guy named Grant Fry. He's the head chocolate maker and the head of franchising for a company called Taste Chocolate. They're based out in Provo, Utah, and they're just in the process uh, of their first real big expansion. There's tons to learn, tons of great takeaways here. I promise you're gonna get something out of this episode. So again, if it sounds like a chocolate maker isn't uh, doesn't have much to do with your, uh, with your business, I promise you it has everything to, to do with your business. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast dedicated solely to helping you build a more profitable and a more sustainable business. Each week, I leverage my 20-plus years in the industry to help you build the business that you want. I also work with owners and operators all over the world to help them increase the profitability of their businesses. I do that mainly through my P3 Mastermind. The three Ps stand for profit, process, and progress. It's a systematic way of helping you increase the profitability in your restaurant. So if you've got loyal customers, if you're driving a lot of revenue to the top line but are struggling to uh, generate consistent, predictable profits, then please get started by re, uh, by uh, setting up a call with me. It's a 30-minute strategy session, absolutely free. Get started by visiting restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. You'll get to learn more about the program. We'll get to learn more about you and your restaurant. Again, 30 minutes, absolutely free. Tons of great value just on that call, and we'll see if you're a good fit. Again, restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. That link is in the show notes. Now. Thousands of restaurants across the country use KickFin to send instant cashless tip payouts directly to their employees' bank accounts the second their shift ends. It's a really simple solution to a really big problem. Because let's face it, paying out cash tips to your workers day after day, shift after shift, is kind of a nightmare. Tedious tip distribution takes managers away from work that matters. It's hard to track payments, which leads to accounting and compliance headaches. Plus, cash tip-outs create the perfect opportunity for theft. And there's never enough cash on hand to pay out those tips, so managers are constantly making bank runs. Bottom line, there's never been a secure, efficient way to tip out until now. Meet KickFin. KickFin is an easy-to-use software that sends real-time, cashless tip payouts straight to your employees' bank accounts 24-7, 365. Tipping out with KickFin gives managers and operators hours back in their day. It makes reporting a breeze and protects your business from mistakes and theft. And employees love it, so it's one of the best recruiting tools out there. Best of all, restaurants can have KickFin up and running overnight. Employees can enroll in seconds, no hardware, no contracts, no setup fees. Get in touch today for a personalized demo and see how restaurants and bars across the country are tipping out with KickFin. Visit kickfin.com slash demo. As always, that link is also in the show notes. Now, 
As I said, today's episode might sound a bit unusual, might sound unique, and on the surface, you may think that this uh, chocolate making has nothing to do with your business, but I promise you I would have not have brought Grant on the show if I felt there wasn't value to share with you. So Grant Fry is my guest today. He's the head chocolate maker at Taste Chocolate. He's also the head of franchise development for the company. There's tons to get to. I can't wait to hear uh, for you to hear his story. Grant, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Chip. Happy to be here. My pleasure. So let's give the audience some context. Um, talk about what um, uh, what Taste is, where it's located, when you guys launched, uh, sort of your journey with the brand, sort of your involvement with it, and we'll use all of that as a launch pad to talk about what's about to happen because that's the that's the real story I want to be able to get to. Yeah, excellent. Um, so Taste is a bean to bar craft chocolate factory. And then next door, we have, um, initially it started as just kind of a showroom concept, right? A little gift shop for the factory um, and a place to do chocolate tasting classes, introduce fine chocolate to the customers that may not be used to that, may not be used to that price tag um, that comes with, you know, supporting the farmers, direct trade, all of that. Yep. Um, and so that's how it started was that showroom. Um, I was one of their first hires back in 2014 and, uh, me and the other hire at that time, slowly, we took very much an entrepreneurship, uh, mindset to the whole experience. So okay. we weren't in charge. We didn't have equity. We were just hourly workers, but we wanted to make it great. And so we started adding offerings as the owners would allow us, we would add, you know, First, some hot cocoa, some European drinking chocolate. Slowly, that menu evolved into a full-service, uh, you know, light fare, but like a lunch-service menu, lots of desserts, uh, tea time, afternoon tea service, fondue, all kinds of experience-based offerings there at that store. And it just evolved into this uh, really unique set of offerings alongside the chocolate shop. Yeah, so... How long was that evolution from when that side shop, you know, the, the mm -hmm. tasting room, uh, from when you guys launched it to when it became really what it is now, which is sort of like a like a daytime cafe? Yeah. Um, it was about four years or so Yeah, until um, it really added everything. You know, the, I think the tea time may have been the last addition. Um, in that chain. And that was honestly the idea of the, the other person who started with me, McKenna. Um, she was, she's much more experienced in the culinary world uh, yep. than I am. And she developed that tea time menu and that is our most popular offering now. And so that's kind of that last thing that really turned the corner to it being uh, really its own business unit outside of just being kind of this part of the factory. Great. So there's so yeah. much that I want to talk about here. And one of the reasons when you and I connected, I just thought this would be a really great episode is because uh, immediately um, I, I just thought of the the evolution sort of of the mm -hmm. brand. I think this is something we don't talk about enough, um, how important it is. We talked a lot about the pivot over the course of the pandemic. And I got sick of that yeah. word as so many people did. Um, and, and I really think of it more in terms of evolution, that, that, a, that a brand is always evolving, always trying to serve their people better. Um, 
more specifically. And, and so by, by nature, you're going to change your offerings. You're going to change the way we continue to serve them. And P.S., over the next 10 years, um, our customers uh, and what our customers want is going to change drastically as they adopt Absolutely. technology in a more meaningful way. They're going to have higher expectations for us um, and, the, and the level of technology that we're going to need to provide at every level of the restaurant industry. I'm firmly convinced of that, and I know that because I've watched every other industry go that way. We are just we are going to go that way. So yeah. we talk about evolution, so I appreciate you bringing up this idea of evolution, that that tasting room sort of evolved into what it is now, which is something that can, number one, drive revenue and be sort of a profitable arm of the business. I think that's an important story to tell, that you guys were chasing that. And one of the things yeah. that you and I talked about, we sort of did a, did a pre-call where we sort of you know, mapped out what we might talk about. And one of the things that you, you sort of talked about was how in its current state, the, the factory, the manufacturing arm of uh, the chocolate is that it's very difficult to be profitable because you're buying really high quality ingredients. It's very labor intensive. It's time intensive because you're doing everything by hand. Anyone that knows, you know, really good bean to bar uh, chocolates, um, instead of a dollar or two a bar, they're 10, 11, $12 a bar. And right. so you do that. You have to charge that because the process is is that expensive. Talk to me about sort of the manufacturing side of the business before we dive back into this sort of tasting room turned cafe. Yeah. Um, and so with the manufacturing, bean to bar, um, as, you, as you mentioned, you know, quality ingredients are expensive. Um, and not only that, but having the direct relationship with the farmers or having someone you trust that has that relationship so that you can be checking in, make sure there's not unethical labor going on, make sure that they're doing everything they can um, to keep fermentation consistent, uh, having a close enough relationship that you can even influence fermentation when you need to back at the farm to develop flavor before it ever gets into your hands. Um, all of that definitely costs money. Um, and it's, it's a lot of time and care put into that. And then you get it to the chocolate factory and you've got, you know, six, seven different steps of processing um, that you need to take it through. So definitely labor intensive. Um, and one of those things where um, all of that adds up to this price that's so far different, it's really a completely different product and a completely different mindset to sell that product than what everyone as a consumer is used to as chocolate, right? right. Um, you know, candy bar is this little impulse buy at the register at the checkout stand Artisan chocolate is not that. It's this whole education process. Um, and so, you know, that's where having something like the tasting experience is really useful, uh, having that education step, um, but translating that to e-commerce, translating it to consumers that aren't there in person in your store and looking at your factory uh, is definitely a challenge and something that, um, you know, takes a lot of work to, to showcase properly um, and to do that education. Yeah, but for sure. Yeah. Go ahead. So talk to me about this because there's two interesting things that are happening. Uh, one of the things that I love to talk about is, uh, and, and I was just out in Las Vegas talking about this, this something I call the luxury mindset, right? That mm -hmm. um, the difference between the commodity mindset and the luxury mindset, not luxury products, but there's, there's a mindset that goes along with this because uh, a $10 chocolate bar, let's say, is expensive for what it is simply by uh, by comparing it to other similar products, meaning right. a Hershey bar, right? Hershey bar yeah. is um, is a commodity chocolate. It's mass produced. It is what it is. It's unchanged, and for that, it's it's sort of uh, it's sort of brilliant, right? That you get what you get, 
Um, you sort of know what you're going to get. But artisan totally. chocolate, so this bean-to-bar chocolate is different. Now, we're not saying spend $50,000 on a chocolate bar. Totally. We're right. saying spend 10, but it's 5, 6x what, uh, what, a, what a Hershey's bar uh, would be. So we get into that commodity mindset. So, mm. And then at the same time, so I want to talk about that first. And then at the yeah. same time, over the last 10 years, bean-to-bar chocolate has exploded. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've sort of launched a bean-to-bar. Anybody who knows this, I mean, the Mast Brothers who are sort of um, uh, have a, a, a fall from grace, let's say. But Mast yeah. Brothers sort of started this. But now we've got you know, uh, hundreds of different ones. I worked for Gotham Chocolates in uh, in mm. New York City. Um, they're certainly winners of a Good Food Award, uh, three years right. running. Um, they're very good at what they do. There's Dandelion. There's, I mean, there's a there's a ton yeah, of brands amazing out too. there. Um, Ashkenazi, uh, no, uh, who is it? Um, Sean Ashkenazi. He's yeah. uh, he's got a really great product. I mean, there's just just yep. great stuff out there. So it it, it exists. So at the same yeah. time, we're saying, hey, don't buy a $2 chocolate bar, buy a $10 chocolate bar. And at the same time, a lot of people are, are making that same plea. So yeah. talk to me first about how you convince someone to even make the jump to consider spending 5X on, uh, uh, on a chocolate bar. And then talk to me about specifically how you guys have tackled this idea of differentiation, which I talk about a lot on, on the show. This idea of, you know, how do you... Um, how do you separate yourself from all the other $10 chocolate bars? How do you think right. about those two sides? Yeah. Um, so the first one's really interesting to me, and it's something that took a long time to change my mindset on. Because um, originally, you know, when I was I was new to business in general when I started that job and new to chocolate and new to luxury goods in general. Um, so a lot of newness. So my mindset was very commodity focused, right? I was like, wow, this is really expensive. Like, I know how to I know how to get someone in the room here to get excited about it, right? Mm -hmm. I can talk it talk it up to them in person, but trying to write sales copy or website copy that does the same thing, sell on e-commerce, um, I had a really hard time figuring that out. Um, and I think the biggest shift for me that happened, um, and I it was during I did a leadership program 10 uh, 10 KSB. Uh, with Goldman Sachs, 10K okay. small businesses. Um, and it was during that that really my mindset shifted and I realized that I'm not trying to convince someone to buy a $10 chocolate bar over that commodity product, right? That's not mm -hmm. the choice they're making. It's I'm trying to get them to choose my chocolate bar as a way to spoil themselves over, say, a $300 Louis Vuitton perfume, mm -hmm. right? Like, a different luxury, a different thing that they're buying in that luxury mindset of like, this is something nice to treat myself. This is yep. something, a cool experience, you know, the tasting classes, this, this is something that will enhance my life and just bring me some joy. And that's a much easier sell, right? Oh, yeah, you're, you're about to drop 200, 300 on a perfume. How about you buy two bars of my really nice chocolate and pay 10% of what you were going to, right? Right, right. Um, and obviously, that's not coming out in my copy directly, but that's the mindset behind it. Is I love it. This is, this is a very affordable luxury, right? Yep. Even though, yeah, it's 10 times a Hershey's bar, but compared to a lot of other luxury experiences, it's way down on the list. Right. Uh, and I want to pause right here for the, yeah. for the sake of the listeners. So if you're sitting here listening and you're saying, well, I, I don't do chocolate bars, so this has nothing to do with me. I just want to pause and say, please don't turn this off because it has everything to do with what you do. And I want to, and I want to highlight something really important. What all of us offer, right? A, a meal out, 
you know, an opportunity for someone to dine out, it is a luxury. And oftentimes it's five, 10, 20 times or more the cost of just cre- uh, cooking dinner at home. I said this before, right? You can, you can feed a family of four for about 10 or $15 if you go to the supermarket and you know what you're doing there. It can be simple, it can be nutritious, and it can be very cheap. And, and I would assume nobody listening to this, uh, to this podcast has a restaurant where you can feed someone or a family of four for $15. I assume many of you yeah. have a price per head that's much higher than $15 per head. So immediately we're, we're, we're asking people to spend a lot more money. It is an indulgence. Um, we are saying, hey, we got you covered. We've already thought of all the recipes. We've already gone shopping. We've cleaned everything. We've prepped everything. We're going to cook it for you. We're going to bring it to you. We're going to make sure you have everything you need for the time when you're here. And at the end, we're even going to clear it away, do all the dishes for you, clean up the dining room. You just get to go home and watch TV. Go home, put the kids to bed, and kick up your feet. That is right. a luxury. It is an indulgence, and it is very, uh, very closely aligned with what uh, with what Grant's talking about here. In that we have to convince people that it's a luxury, on par with other ways that they might that they might treat themselves. So I love that you highlighted that. I think it's a really great way yeah. to think about this. Okay, so that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the flip side then, because now you've got to stand out in a market of ten, twenty, thirty, forty other high-end, really well-produced bean-to-bar chocolates. How do you think about that? Right. Yeah, um, and that was a whole other challenge, right? Um, that one mindset shift happened, and I was like, okay, I, I have a handle on this. You know, I, I, I know how to get people in the door, um, and I, I know how to get them buying chocolate. Um, but there, I think there are two unique advantages that our business has created for itself. Um, the first one is I would call making friends of our competitors. So our shop carries all these artisan chocolate brands, right? And we sell them e-commerce as well. Um, you know, and it's kind of this everyone wins situation because if we have someone else's brand and it's doing really well, they're selling a lot of chocolate. They're making, you know, their margin, their wholesale margins. Yep. Um, and it's great. And, and more artisan chocolates getting in the world, more people are enjoying that. Right. Yep. Um, the, the other thing that we focused on um, alongside that is we kind of pivoted so everyone can do single origin, right? Everyone is getting these great beans. They're showcasing those origins uh, where the yep. beans come from. And that's an important part of what everyone's doing in artisan chocolate. But like you said, not enough to stand out, especially not anymore, right? Even the, the Good Food Awards Academy of Chocolate Awards a lot of makers have those. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while we still participate in that and it's fun uh, to, you know, to have a new bar go in and get, a, get an award, the, the big thing for us was pivoting to local collaborations. And so we started collaborating with a local lavender farm. Um, we collaborated with some local spas, even some universities, created interesting flavors but focused... Um, you know, and that all started with our local tourism agency. We did these flavors that have these sites around our factory, and then we sourced ingredients from around our factory to flavor each of those bars. Give me um, an example now, of that. Give me an example so, of how you're yeah, flavoring yeah. a bar. Perfect. So, for example, we have this image of a mountain, um, 
that's a really popular hiking destination called Mount Timpanogos. They give us the artwork first for this partnership. And they're like, yeah, we want a bar, you know, using this artwork and, and featuring this, this landmark. Um, and then in that image, there are wildflowers in the, in the field they're hiking through. And instantly I thought of honey, those floral notes. So we found a local honey, uh, a local beekeeper, just 15 minutes south of the factory. We make honeycomb candy out of that. And we put that in the bar. Um, so that crunchy toffee. Um, yeah. And right there, we have artwork that is unique, showcasing this landmark. You know, the tourism agencies are all excited about it because it's a way to invite people in. Um, but also this unique local honey that no one else is using, right? Um, and so even if someone else has a honeycomb bar, it's not going to be the same, right? And it's, and it's, that's what artisan chocolate buyers often are looking for is variety, unique flavors. The differentiation, and so they, yeah. Differentiation. And they love even comparing side by side two different makers' interpretations, almost like art where you give two yeah. people a prompt, right? And they create totally different works of art. 100%. That's what our buyers are looking for. And so using something unique to our locale um, gives us just that, yeah, that, that interesting edge. And even if we just end up in kind of this rotation for a customer where they buy some of ours and then they buy a different maker and a different yeah. maker. They come back to ours because we're going to have something interesting and unique every time. I love it. You know, it's funny because I grew up in Philadelphia and in Philadelphia we're famous for cheesesteaks. And yeah. down in South Philly, the two most famous uh, destinations are Pat's and Geno's. They are famously right across the street from each other. Yep. And everybody in Philly's <laughs> got a favorite. Everyone's got an opinion about it. And when tourists come to the city, they got to try a cheesesteak. And inevitably, what they do is they go down to that block, and there's tons of people around. There's bright neon lights, and they're right across the street from each other. And everybody goes to one spot and gets a cheesesteak, goes to the other spot and gets a yep. cheesesteak. They sit down, they open them up, they split them, and they basically, tourists will say, Oh, this is my favorite. Everybody uh -huh. will have an opinion without yeah. the other. So what you're talking about, right, which is really interesting, is this relationship between uh, competition and collaboration. Mm -hmm. Pats has nothing without Geno's. Geno's doesn't exist without Pats. They make right. each other stronger. Two totally different ownerships, and they lean on each other. They, they uh, succeed largely because of each other. And this is something I've talked about on this podcast before, uh, but you're highlighting it in a really, uh, in a really yeah. great way. I love this idea that you guys are embracing the collaborative nature of competition, the fact that there is totally. this category and that you're, uh, that you're inviting them all to the table, right? Yep. It's, it's, it's sort of strange to think of doing uh, but you guys said, no, we're going to do this because, as you said, more artisan chocolate in the world is a good thing, and we can right. highlight them. It's not necessarily better, but you can highlight two bars next to each other, and you can see how they're different. They're both quality, mm -hmm. but I see how one artist interpreted the prompt, and I can now see how the other artist interpreted the prompt. And, and really, both can come out as winners, and both can succeed yeah. uh, because of it. I love this idea. I love that you guys leaned into that. Yeah. Um, and it, it goes as far as to, you know, we have another chocolate maker about 20 minutes away from us and we've had jobs where one of our machines goes down, we help each other out. We bring beans to the other factory and do part of the process there and then take it back while our machine's getting repaired and vice versa. So it is See, this, I love the collaborative atmosphere of that. 
It's so awesome. Everybody in Utah is so nice. I, I wonder, <laughs> I hope this can happen in other states, but yeah. um, all, all you guys in Utah are, are so are so nice. Um, I, yeah. lo- I love that idea. Okay, so then talk to me more about this, because now we get into, so what you guys did is when you, when you started working with the local tourism uh, department and things like that, really mm-hmm. what you were doing was trying to solve a problem, like how can we sell chocolates? And so- right. You've got a retail arm, right? You can make chocolates and sell it in your in your shop, sell it in your tasting room. Um, you've got wholesale. You can create stuff and then go place it in different shops or stores or whatever. Um, and before you, and then eventually you had the hospitality component, the the cafe where you could sell you know other food in addition to chocolate. Those are the three main arms, and you guys sort of solve the problem of like, how are we going to generate more revenue? And you're sort of doing this, this white label, not even a white label, like a, like a co-packing project where you're right. uh, collaborating with different organizations, with universities or, or tourism uh, organizations and things like that. So talk to me about how then that grew. And because now it's a, now it's a pretty big piece of what you do. Tell me if oh, I'm yeah. wrong. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It started as three flavors you know we already had 12 or so on the shelf started as three flavors in that collaboration with the local tourism agency um, and now the collaborative flavors these co-branded uh, flavors are 80 90 percent of what we're doing yeah that's amazing um, so, I just want to highlight yeah. that right there they yeah. stumbled upon something in, in an effort to find additional revenue streams to yep. make the manufacturing part of the business profitable and now that's 80 to 90 percent of the production here so talk to me because that sounds like a miracle (laughs) that you guys stumbled into that um and i'm sure there was a little bit of luck um but it was a little bit of keeping your eyes open so talk to me about then how you so it started with these couple of flavors talk to me about Mm -hmm. then how you deliberately grew that and and how those relationships uh uh, were formed yeah i think there are a couple different parts of it. So first of all, doing those with a tourism agency um, was awesome because it got everyone excited. They have a lot of reach. Um, so they were able to, when we released the flavors, you know, they were able to put it out there to a lot of people. Um, we did like a VIP tasting. Since it's for our county, we invited, you know, our county's VIPs, um, you know, city, yep. city mayor, things like that. Um, Got everyone in, had a tasting, got everyone excited about it. Um, And those just quickly rose the ranks of, out of all the bars in our store, those just quickly rose the ranks. Um, Not only that, but the tourism agency was able to use those as gifts for outbound trade missions, things like that, trade shows. Um, And so it quickly, you know, got us in front of people that were then sending people to Utah as tourists um, to then, you know, start creating ourselves to be a destination when people yep. visit. Um, so that that was a big piece of it, I think. I think the other side of it is just the nature of the project has pushed me to create some really interesting flavors that I wouldn't have come up with without the inspiration of the artwork that we were using for That's them. Cool. Um, and and, and so, I will share the link, and you guys have to go check out. The link is in the show notes, but you have to check out the um, uh, these... Uh, uh, the packaging, um, the wrappers yeah. for these are so beautiful. The artwork is so beautiful. Um, it showcases the brand really well. It showcases the state, the county, the the yeah. sort of the, the national parks that are around there really, really well. It's it's a really great marriage. Um, they're really easy to look at. They're they're really fun. 
Pop Menu has reimagined the restaurant. They're breaking the mold of the menu, taking the kitchen doors off the hinges, and serving up their most comprehensive technology solution. Yet, it's called Pop Menu Max. It comes with the previous ingredients you've heard me mention on this podcast. Websites designed with SEO, marketing tools uh, that keep you top of mind with guests, and of course, the patented interactive menu technology. But this new recipe brings automated phone answering, third-party online order aggregation, waitlisting, and more to the table. Pop Menu's phone answering technology has your ringing phones covered. With artificial intelligence, the simple questions that used to keep your phone line tied up can now be handled without pulling a staff member from your in-person hospitality. No more missed reservations, asking for your hours, or missed revenue. And guess what? That's just the beginning. You have a passion for food. Pop Menu has a passion for technology. Together, it's a recipe for restaurant success. Now, even more digital ingredients are in their technology pantry, and Pop Menu is helping restaurants attract, engage, remarket, and transact with their guests on a whole new level. Trust me, if you're a restaurant owner, you need Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month, plus you get to lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy to claim the offer. That's $100 off your first month by visiting popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy. That link is also in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, they're beautiful for sure. Um, and big shout out to our, our artists that have made those pieces of art for us over the years. Um, but yeah, I think kind of the combination of those two things where we're, we're thinking outside the box on flavors because of it, and we have this extra reach from the tourism org organization. You know, after we did, I think we went to nine flavors with that mm -hmm. county tourism, we started getting requests from other organizations, universities, like I said, spas, things like that, other local businesses. Right. We started doing co-branded bars with them. Um, and we, in that process, we figured out how to streamline, um, you know, our packaging requests and how to set up these deals so that it's not this huge outset for the small businesses that are collaborating with us. Um, you know, the bigger organizations, we do big, bigger MOQs. We figured out a way to work it so that we could uh, have it make sense to do smaller runs for these right. other collaborations to get it started at least. Um, and then, you know, get the product to market faster. Um, and yeah, it just continued expanding and pushing us for unique flavors. The artwork's always beautiful and unique, um, showcasing these places. And then those inclusions, you know, that lavender from the farm up in Heber is just special. It's unique. They put a lot of care into the varieties they're growing. And so it's just going to taste different than any other lavender bar. Um, oh, and so, yeah, it. opened a lot of doors doing that project. And as soon as we saw the popularity of those first few bars, we were like, yeah, we got we to gotta keep pushing this and see what we can do with it. And so what's really cool is that, again, we talked about the relationship between competitors, right? This collaboration and competition. You are naturally in, in a category with lots of mm -hmm. other high-end bean-to-bar artisanal chocolates. And you have to separate yourself. And like you said, single origin is no longer a differentiator because mm -hmm. single origin meaning all the beans are coming from a single farm, a single plantation, a single location. Mm -hmm. Um, we know that in wine, that's a big deal in, in wine, and yeah. now it's becoming a big deal in chocolate over the last, let's say, 10 years or so. But it's yeah. no longer a differentiator, and what I think is really special is that as you're doing single origin, it's a celebration of that place, that process, right, the fermentation that happens there on the ground. 
And then by virtue of what you're doing, it's also a celebration of the place where it's being uh, manufactured, uh, where it's being made. Uh, It's a celebration of the state, sort of the the local artisans, the farmers, the sort of producers, the vendors that are around you, uh, which which ultimately is is really cool, which we really should be doing, uh, which we really should be doing anyway. Certainly restaurants do that all the time, focusing on on the different um, farmers and and partners in, in the nearby areas. Right. I'd say it's almost our interpretation of farm-to-table restaurant, right, with yep. our factory. Yeah. Right? Um, very similar concept. You know, and we try to do that in the, in the cafe as well, mirror that, um, that passion for, for highlighting so, these, these places. Yeah. So then talk to me about this cafe, because now the cafe yeah. has become a significant revenue stream for you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very profitable at, at this point, um, so much so that you guys are looking to expand, and I, I want to talk about right. that. Um, talk about the next steps for that. But before we go there, I want mm-hmm. you to explain to me about how, where this thing is now, how is, um, it's its own thing and yet it's under the roof of this chocolate company. So talk to me about how, how much of it is its own thing, how much of it is a celebration or an extension of the, of the taste brand. Yeah. Um, I think, I think there's obviously going to be always a connection there, right? It's mm-hmm. that's some that's a big part of what makes it interesting is yeah, our chocolate is from this factory right next door for all our desserts and everything. Like obviously that's that's a big element. Um but a lot of a lot of what we focus on in the store is just the experience of tasting all these different products, all these different chocolates. Um vinegars, olive oils. We bring some other things in as well. Um, just things that are, are fun for the palate and, and the tea time, the fondue, it's all very experiential. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we focus a lot more on the idea of, you know, this is a place to, to come together, to, to enjoy experience. That's a little more unusual, you know, taste some things you haven't tasted before. Um, and learn about where those things come from, what makes them so unique. And, you know, even casually, just in the conversation with customers, you know, they order uh, a brownie off our menu, and we have this opportunity to to chat briefly about the chocolate, where it's coming from, the fact that it's this rich flavor is coming from the beans from Ecuador that we're using in the factory to, to make the chocolate. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's just this general sense of... Um, you know, a luxury. The space is very beautiful as well. It's it's been um, crafted to feel very European. We get the comment all the time that people step in and they're like, "I don't feel like I'm in Utah anymore." Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, um, I think it's this it's this little escape kind of in the cafe. Um, and whether they're whether our customers are there alone or in a group, it's this chance to just kind of escape whatever they're worried about, whatever they're thinking about, um, and just enjoy something unique and learn something new. Um, and that includes hyping up all these competitors, right? Uh, yeah. Talking about all these brands of chocolate that we're bringing in from all over the world um, and and from our neighbors, uh, you know, other chocolate makers right in our area. Um, and just being able to be excited about those and not have to be so worried about, you know, let's downplay these so that ours sound better. Like, that's not yeah. at all part of the model. It's just let's get everyone we can excited about artisan chocolate and, and see the value in all these brands and see what all these makers are doing. 
Yeah, I think it's something that I've talked about a lot, and this is a perfect opportunity for me to just remind the the listeners about this. Um, if you've been listening for a while, you've heard me say this. If you're new to the show or somewhat new to the show, um, you might have missed me say this, but I, I talk sometimes about something I call the better trap, right? Is that we're not trying to convince somebody that ours is better. We are trying to convince them to come to ours, to our place instead of the place next door or instead of the place across the street. Um, ideally, they want uh, people to buy the taste chocolate uh, as opposed right. to somebody else. But, but the trap is saying, well, why should I get yours instead of theirs? Well, because ours is better. That's a trap. Because taste is subjective. And ultimately, who's to say? Who's to say that my palate is better than yours? If I like something better, um, it, 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 it is a trap. It's, it's yeah. better to say the ways in which you are different. Well, what we do is X, Y, and Z, or the unique way we finish it, or the way we partner with X, Y, and Z uh, organizations, that's what sets ours apart. I think they're both excellent chocolates, and it really depends what you're more in the mood for. We celebrate this, and they can tell you what they celebrate. You know, and, right. and if they're all done well, then they should all be able to say how they're different than the other nine bars laid out on the table. Right. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely. It's it's the only it's the only way to it's the only way to exist in a market as saturated as ours because mm -hmm. there are so many great options out there. And, and really, it's true with with just about uh, with just about anything. You find this with like TVs all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes you find this with uh, cars, certainly like luxury cars are really great about this. Like all the TVs are great. You're standing at Best Buy looking at, you know, all these different ones, but they'll say, oh, the contrast is really, a saturation's really high on the, right? Samsung really celebrates high uh, contrast, high uh, saturation. Um, Sony actually sort of does the opposite. Uh, they're more muted. It's less, uh, less contrast. You can play with the contrast, but that's something that the companies believe about mm -hmm. the, the picture that they do. So it doesn't matter whichever one you want. You know, I prefer one, my father-in-law prefers the other. Neither of us are wrong. Um, we just we just got what we wanted. And luckily, there's a, enough of a market out there where we can go out and get the, get the one we exactly want. Absolutely. So talk to me then, so you guys are expanding. So the Taste yeah. brand is ready to franchise. You are actually at the helm of the first franchise location Talk to me about the decision to do that, your decision to get involved mm -hmm. at that level, and how this whole process is has been for you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, over the years, we we had been approached a couple times by other people that were interested in opening up uh, one of the cafes somewhere else because um, mm -hmm. they just loved it and they couldn't come here often enough and they wanted it near them. Um, but Back then, I wasn't super involved in the strategy, um, but we also just weren't ready for that. Our concept wasn't developed yet. Um, you know, it was mostly just the shop at that point. Um, and I don't know how well that would have fared. But um, that, that sparked us a little bit to start thinking about that. Like, okay, at some point, we want to be ready to franchise this um, because it is unique. It is a cool experience. Um, and when I was going through, again, that leadership program was really great for me, really changed my mindset a lot about a lot of things. Um, I was looking at the whole point of that program I did was to figure out a three-year growth plan and basically assess all these different options for how we could grow and then pick one and commit to it, right? Um, and very quickly running numbers on the different ways we could expand, different ways we could grow. Um, 
I, I saw the immense value in having more locations um, mm-hmm. because both sides of our business win at that point, right? We introduce more customers to our bars, um, to our chocolate. We use chocolate in the kitchens in more places and can move through a lot more chocolate. Um, and just in general, expand our customer base. Um, we also, you know, because of those collaborations being a big part of what we do, the idea of being in other places and having new potential partners in these other locations um, also is this big opportunity for the factory. Um, You already already figured out the game plan. So when you go to another state, another county, another town, you just sort of run that game plan and say, hey, this is what we did with these organizations. We'd love to do the same for you. This is the, what they were able to do with that. I mean, I love it. Right. Um, Exactly. And so, you know, we, we were looking at these different things of like, yeah, look at these machine investments we could do in the factory, look at, look at this, but saw really fast that franchising was the way to go. Um, and so once, once I had found that, presented it to, to the other owners, um, at that point I had gained a little equity and was really involved in the strategy mm-hmm. um, back n- near the end of 2020. Um, and... You know, I was like, honestly, this, I think this is our way forward. Let's get this going. Um, you know, start figuring out what we have to do to, to be ready to do this. Um, and so they had me start working on the franchise planning just as the franchisor, right? Start figuring out the system, get everything in place so that this is turnkey ready to hand to someone yep. um, and run a franchise. And as I got into that and started, especially the the financial projections section of that, um, I was like, well, I want one of these at some point. Like, yeah. I didn't think I was—I didn't think I was ready yet to do that. But I was like, yeah, hopefully this is in my future at some point to to own one of these um, as my own location. Um, and it was kind of this this combination of um, I started reaching out to just my network and seeing if anyone was interested in in getting one of these going and looking in some spaces as well. We considered even just doing a second company location to start it out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and every everywhere I was trying to rent for the second company location that I was trying to lease was saying, well, you know, I, I'm not totally sure about this this concept. You only have the one store. So, like, what, what makes you sure it's going to do okay here? Because it's not going to have the factory. It's not going to have this. Um, and And I kept running into this this problem. Um, and I could see that potentially with, with franchisees, you know, signing on a first franchisee as someone who doesn't really know the business. Um, a lot of the same problems could, could occur for them. You know, it's not, it's not a sure bet. It's a second, it's the first franchise. Yep. Um, and so right as I was realizing that, um, that, you know, we kind of needed to test pilot this, uh, ourselves. Um, I had a friend reach out to me, initially interested in investing just in the factory, um, just in that side of the business, um, just as a silent investor, wanted to get get involved in something different. Um, and so I I pitched the franchise idea to him instead, and and he just lit up. He was so excited because he just he loved our space and he wanted to be involved somehow. Um, and so yeah, with that buy in, I just jumped right into you know. Okay, I'm going to test pilot this. You know, I know it works. I I believe in it. Um, So let me find somewhere to set up this one and prove our concept so that we have this, you know, a lot more of a sure bet for the next person to sign on. 
I love it. I think it's really a unique trajectory. And yet, um, as I hear you say it, I'm guessing there are probably plenty of people listening who are in a similar or have seen a similar kind of situation. As you explain it, um, it makes it it makes a great deal of sense. So talk to me about this first location. Where's it going? When's it opening? Yeah, so it's going to be in Mesa, Arizona. um, And we can get in if you want to explore the reasons why, um, because a lot of people were... A lot of people were surprised that we didn't go somewhere close, right? Somewhere close to Utah or close within Utah. Um, But it will be there and we're in the middle of the internal uh, renovations. Uh, So we're about eight weeks away from being able to at least do a soft opening. Um, So, yeah, we're we're getting close. Really excited to, to get it going. Okay, so then um, why, but why, yeah. uh, why Arizona? Why Mesa? What, what did that have that, um, that made you go so far away? Yeah, so a couple, couple different reasons. Um, the first one being that, you know, I looked at some locations a lot closer to us, um, you know, between us and Salt Lake. Um, and there was just a little bit of worry from the owners of, you know, cannibalizing our own customers, basically. Yeah. Um, and especially it being a franchise, not a second location for the company, there was just concern about, you know, losing customers that would come and and be profitable customers here, just having a royalty from those same customers instead of, you know, actually yep. being able to serve them. Um, so, which I totally understand. Um, so, started doing market research, figuring out where's, you know, where's the best place if we're not going to be here in Utah, uh, where's the best place to be? Um, and Las Vegas and Phoenix came up really high on that on that radar as we started looking at spaces to lease and also just populations in the neighboring you know areas around phoenix um, i landed on mesa for both you know the normal market research demographic reasons but also uh realized that there is a large cross population between mesa and provo um, so we we were hearing that a lot of our customers either moved to Mesa or had family in Mesa or, you know, all these connections just started kind of popping up all over the place. Um, and our local airport here in Provo even has direct flights to Mesa um, because it's such a popular place to go between. Hmm. Uh, and so seeing that crossover of the population, I was like, there's got to be something there, you know. Basically, we're going into a place where we already know the customer. Um, and so started that process figuring, you know, this our marketing doesn't have to change much. The crowd, we already know them. Um, you know, very similar population, but about twice the size of here in Provo. Yeah, so um, that's interesting. So you found a much bigger footprint. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, that was a big part of my goal is I wanted to be somewhere bigger. I wanted to test the concept somewhere bigger. Right, rather than the small college town, I want to be in a different type of um, different type of customer base. Uh, but the we found a space, started the, the leasing process, and um, once we were, you know, signing the contracts, the the builder that we had signed on and the leasing agent both came to me that same day and were like, "Hey, I didn't want this to like influence your decision or whatever, but." my wife has been to your store all the time in Provo and loves it. And they were yeah. so excited that you're coming here to Mesa. Oh, that's funny. Um, and so, 
yeah, that was just like, you know, check that box, just this confirmation for me of like, okay, yeah, I think this is going to be a good space for us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now tell me when, at what point, maybe you already have started doing this, but at what Mm -hmm. point do you start um, working on those connections for that, the co-branding piece of, right? Because Arizona's got all the same infrastructure, right? They've got a, they got a state, they got counties, they got, uh, you know, national parks, state parks, all that. So when, when does that thing begin? Yeah. Um, so the process began as soon as that lease was signed. I reached out to the tourism, you know, got, I asked our tourism agency to give us an intro because um, they, you know, meet up at trade shows. They know each yep. other. Um, so they gave me an intro. Um, I, you know, reached out and just kind of started that conversation, um, both of, you know, this is a new thing that's coming to your area. So we want to talk about the location, but also here's what we did with our tourism agency with these bars. Um, so yeah, that, that started right away. Um, now that we're a little closer, you know, construction as usual has kind of dragged out the timelines on permits, things like that have dragged out longer yep. than I was initially hoping. Um, and so now that we're actually at this point of like, we're at the end of build out we're we're getting this, this thing done. Um, you know, we're starting those conversations a lot more heavily now of like, okay, let's start doing this. Let's start figuring out this project. But, you know, there's immediate interest, I think. Um, and then, yeah, starting to reach out to other, other businesses in the area as well. Um, trying to do, you know, we've already set up some partnerships with like some ice cream shops to feature our, some of our bar flavors as an ice cream for a while, things like that, just to get our name out, to start introducing ourselves even before we open up shop. Yeah. Um, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Finding these collaborations. There is a lesson here, right, that, you know, they found Mesa because there was a connection with the people, that there's some people have family, people move there, there's a lot of people knew the shop or whatever, that there are relationships that, you know, we talk about relationship, and it's a big word, um, and yet, you know, people want to support people that they know, like, and trust. They want to support companies that they know, like, and trust. And to begin that, they got to know you. Before they can like you or trust you, they got to they gotta know you. And the coolest part about what you guys have done is you found a way to both drive revenue, you know, through these mm-hmm. co-branding opportunities, but also to make sure a lot of people hear your name, get their product yep. in, your, in, in their bellies um, mm-hmm. long before they even realize that there's, a, that there's a factory they can visit, a shop, a tasting room, a cafe. And I think that's really, really important. Too often, I think, uh, on the restaurant side, we do these things where we say, hey, I got a great space. I know my food's going to be good. I'll, I'll do all this. I'll open up the doors, and everybody will be just so excited that I'm there. And that's very rarely the case because all of us, and think back to your own habits, we all have places that we know, like, and trust, that we've come to rely on, right? Places that are yeah. as comfortable as our own as our own kitchens, as our own living rooms. And so to get someone to switch, right? That we always talk about the switching cost in, um, in business. The switching cost from something you know you like to something you don't know if you'll like is huge. And we've got to try to make that easier as, in as many ways as possible. And so it's one of the big things, one of the big reasons why I wanted Grant to come on the show uh, and, and talk to everybody. Number one, um, I think the way they landed into the restaurant industry is unique. Um, but the Definitely. lessons they learned along the way and the things that they're still putting into practice are really good. It's grassroots. It's it's guerrilla, right? Like, you know, we talk about, you know, the, the fancy things, the, you know, tactics we have. They just called, you know, they called the contact they already had, the relationship that they'd already spent years building. 
in Utah to broker a conversation, introduction to the folks in Arizona, and they got further or they got to the right person sooner than had they tried to cold call or go about it their own way. Those things are okay. It's just simply a matter of putting your thumb on the scale and it makes all the difference. So as you're listening to this episode, and I hope you're getting a lot out of this, right? The, the, the parallels are so obvious to me that I hope we're able to take away from the things that Grant and his company have done for their chocolate, for their their company. And I hope we can apply a lot of those same lessons to your own restaurants, whatever it is that you do. All right, Grant, listen, I've loved this conversation. I got five rapid fire questions for you to close out out this interview. You ready? Yep, ready. All right, first question, what's the last great meal you had? Ooh, um... Sorry, that's not very rapid fire. I got to no, think for a second. No, I, I say rapid uh, fire. They're, they're the same five I ask a, a lot of the uh, the people who come on the show. I don't know. I don't know about the... So my wife and I made a homemade, homemade lasagna from scratch on Sunday, and it was pretty great. Um, so honestly, that's what came to mind. But, I love it. That's the right answer uh, then. Yeah. That's, all, that's what so, I want to hear. Yeah. So you made lasagna from scratch, and it was uh, it worked. There's plenty of yep. things that you do, and they don't work. I, I, love, yeah. I love that answer. <laughs> Um, number two, what's the last great hospitality touch you had? Ah, so I had a, a cold call. Well, no, it wasn't a cold call. Um, but a lead from a trade show came, um, and a salesperson came to, to pitch me, um, a point of sales software. And he brought donuts for my staff. And, um, not only that, but started our conversation in the factory with, oh, cool, are there any, like, are you guys in any of these stores? And listed off, like, four local shops that would carry our product that aren't currently and gave me four leads for wholesale, basically. Perfect. Um, So, yeah, that combination really impressed me, and it's something that got me thinking about his offering that I normally would have just sent him right back out the door. Isn't that amazing? He spent $9 on you, on your staff, to get donuts, and gave you four ideas that cost him absolutely nothing, but it's going to generate right. you revenue. Uh, maybe the revenue needed to switch to a new POS. I love it. I, I, totally. Every time I ask yeah. this question, the common thread is that it was just this little thing. Yeah. It wasn't some yeah. huge flourish. It wasn't some, it's just a little thing and it makes all the difference. Yep. I think it's a big lesson for us to learn. Totally. All right. Uh, if Jeannie came down and could grant you one wish as it relates to uh, to our industry, what would it be? What would you wish for? I would say steady. Uh, no. I would wish for easier benefits for hourly workers. Yeah, I think that's, that's what I would one. want. I think that's yep. a great one. Uh, all right. Number four, uh, what would you tell someone you're about to open your first restaurant on your own. So what would you tell someone who's about to open their first restaurant? I would say invest more than you think in marketing and tie that to marketing efforts that allow you to connect and talk with your customer, not just pushy in your face, salesy content, but something that lets you connect. Yeah. Pull marketing, not push marketing. I love that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Great. Okay. uh, Last question. Um, I want you to think about the future of restaurants. I want you to look five years down the line and tell me tell me something that you see coming that other people may not see coming. I think the biggest thing coming is just 
more and more exploration of uh, what may right now feel like uh, exotic or like not well-known cuisines. I think consumers are really hungry to experience these other cultures that may not be in the, in the limelight or may not be these bigger powers in the scene. They want to, they want to know what these little communities, unique dishes are, things like that. So I think a lot more, you know, more and more of that, um, exploration of, of flavors from, from new places. I love it. I would, uh, I would agree with that. I think that's, uh, I think that's definitely coming. We're certainly seeing that. Um, listen, Grant, I appreciate you taking the time to share your story and I wish you the best of luck as you, uh, you open your first uh, location, your first franchise. Um, obviously it's going to be a big one for the company. It's going to be a big one for you personally. Um, tell the listeners, uh, where they can go to learn more about the brand, uh, website, social media, where should they go to check it out? Yeah. Um, so definitely best two resources are website taste117.com. Um, and that has information about our store and our factory. So you can learn everything on that one site. And then Instagram at have taste is our Instagram handle. And that has all the really pretty content um, and all the, the great work our, our people are doing to showcase what we're, what we're making there. So. Perfect. And as I said, I promised uh, those links uh, are in the show notes. So go check them out. Um, Grant, all the best to you. Appreciate you being here. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it being able to be on here. Thanks, Chip. My pleasure. So again, I want to thank Grant for taking time out of his day to share his story with us. They're right in the, the beginning, right on the edge of a, of a huge expansion. Uh, I think what they've accomplished so far is incredible. I think what they've got coming ahead of them is really, really special. Again, all those links are going to be in the show notes. So make sure you to go check out the brand. Go see the, their labels that we talked about. See what it is they're doing. I'm sure you can learn something and apply some of what they're doing to your own business. Uh, one final reminder that if you're curious to learn more about my P3 Mastermind, set up a free call with me. It's a 30-minute strategy session. You do that by visiting restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. If you're generating a lot of revenue but struggling to uh, to kick that to the bottom line, to generate consistent, predictable 20% profit, I promise we can help. Again, restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. Set up a free call with me. You'll find that link in the show notes. As always, I appreciate you being here, and I will see you next time.